On two separate occasions in the last 10 days, I've been approached by members in our congregation and the conversation has gone something like this. I'm talking to a friend, they're not a Christian, and they have severe issues because of being exposed to things on the internet. They have severe issues with me quoting the Bible. They say that the Bible's been messed with. Scribes have messed with the text of the Bible and it can't be trusted. Do I have any material to combat this? That's basically been twice in the last 10 days, as I say, uh, conversations such as those. The wonderful thing is that these two people that have approached me are having gospel conversations. They're talking to others about Jesus. They're quoting the Bible, but they've run into something of a roadblock in their conversation and it has prevented further conversation. They have to get over these roadblocks if there is to be a further uh, revealing of the gospel and speaking of the Bible. The great news is we can address the issues that are raised in this realm and then get to the message of the Bible. And so I've uh, really felt as a pastor I need to address this issue, not only to the two that uh, have asked me about this, but to the broader congregation. Uh, it will be helpful if we know something of this discipline called textual criticism. That's the name of the field of study when we talk about manuscripts, both of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, it used to be, it used to be the case that it was only seminarians, people that went to seminary, that were preparing for Christian ministry, that had to study or be aware of this discipline called textual criticism. Um, that's no longer the case because of the internet. Uh, you don't need to be an expert for sure, but you do need to be aware of the issues if you're going to have uh, conversations, as I've just found out in the last 10 days, and I'm sure it's typical of many conversations. I want to say this. I went to seminary, Bible college as it was called in England, back in the year 1985. I was a young man with a firm conviction that the Bible is the Word of God. All these years on, all these decades on, I still affirm that. The Bible alone is the Word of God. But as I entered into seminary, I did have a lurking question in my mind, and it was this. After rigorous study, would I still believe that conviction? The Bible is the Word of God. Well, I can say, yes, I do. I have that same conviction. I believe the Holy Spirit gives his people that conviction that when they're hearing the Word of God, the Bible, that's exactly what they're hearing, the Word of God. When they're reading the Bible, it's the Word of God. It's different from any other book. It's inspired by God. As 2 Timothy 3.16 proclaims, all scripture is theodnoustos in Greek. It's God-breathed. Now, I say I believe the Bible's the Word of God. I still have that firm conviction and I'm so glad I can do so. I can make that proclamation without having to dispense with rationality. 
I have not had to kiss my brains goodbye to say God has spoken and he has preserved his word. Those two things go together. God has spoken, but the word that he has spoken has not been lost. We have it. The Lord has not only spoken his word, he has preserved his word. And that's so vital. It's what we're to live by. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, Jesus said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Well, if we don't have the words of God, how can we live? The obvious answer to that is we can't. So two things need to be in play for us to function in life. Have knowledge that God has spoken, have the word of God, and that word be in our hands. God has spoken and he has preserved that word. Now, when we talk about this, we need to make some distinctions. Uh, Theologians make distinctions all the time, and it's important that we do. When we talk about the word of God, we're talking about the original writings of Moses, of the prophets, of the New Testament apostles and their associates and so on. We're talking about in theological language, the original autographs, the, uh, the words that were penned by the original authors. They're called autographs. Now, when we talk about inspiration, we're talking about the original words penned by the writers of the Bible, and we're not talking about inspiration of the copies. That's an important, a vital distinction. God uh, was able to uh, superintend the writing of the Old and New Testament so that every word, though written by man, was also inspired by God. And we say the same about Jesus. He's truly God, truly man. Well, the Bible is truly man and truly God in the sense that men wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Book of 2 Peter chapter 1. Uh, tells us that in those familiar words. So the original autographs are inspired, not the inspiration of copies. Now, for a copy to take place, they take the original at the first outing of this, and with a candle perhaps, or in daylight, candle at night, perhaps in situation where they're cold or they're sweating in the heat, we don't know, they are attempting to reproduce a copy. And we're not saying that when they do that, they are writing with inspiration. No, um, the original writers were. And there's no promise that uh, scribes copying won't make mistakes. There's no promise of God for that. There are mistakes in copies, just as there are mistakes and would be mistakes if we were to take any chapter of the Bible. Let's take uh, one of the chapters in 1 Chronicles where there's a list of names. And even in English, if we had 100 people write out one of those chapters, there would be mistakes, spelling mistakes, perhaps word order or name order mistakes. There would be mistakes in the copies. 
What we're saying is there aren't mistakes in the original. Now, the problem is we don't have the original. We don't have the original scroll that Moses wrote. But that's not really a problem. And it's not really a problem that we don't have the original letter of Paul to the Romans. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. And to talk more about it would be to be engaged in this discipline called textual criticism. What is out there on the internet, and not just the internet, but in book form, is really uh, ridiculous in many, many ways. Um, not everything out there. There's a lot of good scholarship, and I'll hopefully point you to some good sound material. But it's easy to come across YouTube videos that talk about the fact, so-called fact, that the deity of Christ was something invented by Constantine in the year 325 in Nicaea um, to really bring the empire together. There were all kinds of factions, but we could be united on the deity of Christ. So let's do that and therefore go back and insert the deity of Christ into what is known as the New Testament. Do you know that's impossible? It's actually ludicrous that some sinister person or group, now hear this, could have had access to all the manuscripts. Do you realize to change the New Testament so that it now spoke of the deity of Christ? That would be impossible for the simple reason that Christians loved the scriptures and copied them incessantly. There were thousands upon thousands of copies of the gospel circulating around because people loved them and wanted to copy themselves. And so even if it was just for uh, their own family, they would be copying what they could find of the New Testament so that they would have it. And so do you realize to insert the deity of Christ, say in John's gospel, by the way, it starts in the first verse. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. If that was inserted at 325, it's, it's ludicrous to even make that as a, a, an idea because you would have had to have all the manuscripts in a room or a big <laughs> warehouse or something and say, all right, work on uh, inserting that, that verse into John's gospel. It's impossible because the copies of the New Testament went far and wide and there were thousands upon thousands of them. And I mean far and wide throughout the empire and beyond. Huh. They were everywhere. They were spread abroad and they could never be put in one location. And that's what you'd need to have in place if you're this uh, sinister personal group that's going to put the uh, or insert the deity of Christ into the manuscript. Again, absolutely impossible. Let me quote from a wonderful book called Reinventing Jesus, How Contemporary Skeptics miss the real Jesus and mislead popular culture. Uh, three authors, uh, the, the one I'm going to quote, I believe, in this particular chapter is Daniel B. Wallace. I believe he's the leading scholar in textual criticism in our world today. 
And it's chapter 8 I'm quoting, which is, is what we have now what they wrote then? By the way, on the internet, if you go to YouTube and look up Dan Wallace on that theme, there's some wonderful material that uh, would be helpful. But here's a chapter, I believe it's his uh, expressions here as we read in chapter 8. Popular culture, pop culture, promotes bizarre myths about the Bible. And again, I'm quoting. These urban legends are then fueled by self-proclaimed authorities on the internet or in novels that make it on the bestseller list. Meanwhile, biblical scholars tend to ignore these childish antics since they know that there is no substance to them. This leaves the layperson without a clue as to what's really going on. As an illustration of the sort of unfounded myth we're talking about, the comments of Sir Leigh Teabing, a character in Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code, readily come to mind. He pontificates, unquote, The Bible is a product of man, my dear, not of God. The Bible did not fall magically from the clouds. Man created it as a historical record of tumultuous times, and it has evolved through countless translations, additions, and revisions. History has never had a definitive version of the book. Quote, end of quote. Continuing on. There is, of course, a grain of truth in all this. The Bible did not fall magically from the clouds, and the Bible had human authors. But to say that the Bible has evolved through translations, additions, and revisions with the implication that the original is no longer detectable is just plain silly. I like that. I think that's so, so true. So, so true. Um, continuing on in page uh, 104 of this book, what really is at stake when it comes to the accuracy of the copies of the New Testament text? We've already noted four kinds of textual problems relevant to this issue. The largest number of textual variants, variants well over half, involves spelling differences and nonsense readings that are easily detectable. These affect nothing of significance in the text. Two, next in number of those variants that do not affect translation or if they do involve synonyms. Variants such as Christ Jesus versus Jesus Christ may entail a slightly different emphasis, but nothing of great consequence is involved. I'm sure you're following that. A scribe Instead of writing Christ Jesus, writes Jesus Christ. That's a variant. But has it changed the meaning of the manuscript? Not at all. If someone is continually writing Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus, and then the original says uh, Jesus Christ at a certain point, they might have a tendency to log in their minds Christ Jesus and write it that way. That's the point being made. Number three. Other, more meaningful variants are not viable. They simply have no plausibility when it comes to reflecting the wording of the original because the manuscripts in which they are found have a poor pedigree. This issue involves careful historical investigation and requires the scholar to take the transmission of the text seriously. For the smallest category, 
about 1% of all textual problems involves those variants that are both meaningful and viable. Most New Testament scholars would say that there are far fewer textual problems in this category than even 1% of the total. But even assuming the more generous amount, by expanding the scope of both meaningful and viable, not much of theological nature is affected. We're talking about uh, something very, very important. Let me again quote from page 109. The situation for the New Testament is hardly as bleak as this, talking about what others are saying. Of the 138,000 words of the original text, only one or two might have no manuscript support. And in the places where conjecture may be necessary, this does not mean that we have no idea what the original text said. Instead, precisely because almost all the possible variants are already to be found in the manuscripts, scholars have a rather limited number of options with which to contend. Now suppose that when faced with variants, textual critics simply picked readings at random without any genuine scholarly method, like chimps taking a multiple choice exam. But even if this were the case, virtually all of the answers would make sense and most of them are very close to the wording of the others. Furthermore, almost never is there the option none of the above. Of course, as we saw in the previous chapter, New Testament textual criticism is a very exacting discipline with several checks and balances. It is not a bunch of chimps random, randomly picking from a list, list of options. Frankly, when skeptics try to make the claim that we simply have no clue what the original New Testament text said, one has to wonder what drives their dogmatic skepticism because it is certainly isn't. It certainly isn't the evidence. That's important. That's very, very important we grab hold of that. When we talk of textual variants, we're, we're talking about differences of spelling. For instance, the name David can be, you think, can only be five letters in English, but you'll be amazed how many different ways the name David can be spelt, especially at times when there was no standard way of writing the name. It could be David, David, da David with an E on the end, uh, D-A-B-I-D, all kinds of things. We can do that in English, and so it is with the text and manuscripts. There are differences, and each one would be described as a variant. You see the point I'm making? There are lots and lots of variants, but that is only because of this. Grab hold of this. We have an abundance of copies. You see, if you only had one copy, there wouldn't be any variance. But it's because we have thousands of copies that we have hundreds of thousands of variants. And all of that's a good thing because we can check and through the discipline of textual criticism come up with the right spelling or at least understand what is being communicated. Has the Bible been translated and retranslated so many times that we don't know what it originally said? No. 
We're actually getting closer and closer to the original text as more and more discoveries are made. Uh, Dr. Dan Wallace uh, brings up a, a little bit of a graph. I want to describe it to you. And he talks about the King James Version, which, as we know, was published in 1611, the year 1611. When it was translated, it relied on a Greek New Testament written by Erasmus, um, which relied on eight Greek manuscripts. The earliest manuscript was from the 11th century. There's a lot of numbers there. But the King James Version was based on a Greek New Testament written by Erasmus. Eight manuscripts were looked at. The earliest manuscripts were in the 11th century, and it relied predominantly upon three of those manuscripts. Fast forward to the year in which we are, 2024. We don't just have eight manuscripts. We have 5,500 plus, and the earliest manuscripts go much, much closer to the original, not the 11th century like the King James was based on, but the second century. Think of that. We know far more now than people did in 1611. By the way, the New King James Version was uh, based on the same Greek New Testament called the Textus Receptus, and uh, it's a very great translation. I have it. I use it. It's wonderful. I was having a conversation with Dr. James White, and uh, he is also a scholar in this area, and I asked him about the New King James, and uh, he said uh, these words, and I remember leaving the conversation and writing them down so I didn't forget. Of the New King James Version, he said this, it's an excellent translation of an inferior Greek text. Now, follow that. It's a wonderful translation of a Greek text that's inferior. Why? Because it's based on the same uh, manuscripts as was the King James Version. The bottom line is this, as time goes on, we're getting closer and closer to what was originally in the text. 99% of the variants have very, well, let me say it this way, virtually no difference whatsoever. It's spelling, it's word order, it's Christ Jesus rather than Jesus Christ. And uh, the nature of these variants aren't in any way meaningful. They don't pause uh, cause any problems. They don't pose a problem. Um, and uh, Dr. Dan Wallace, who again is a ter terrific scholar in this area, says less than one-tenth of one percent are meaningful and viable um, variants. What is a variant? Any difference whatsoever, including spelling. Now I hope that's helpful. I'd like us to understand that this is a field that you can delve deeply into. If you're in any way interested, you can uh, delve further. I really do recommend the teaching I spoke of earlier uh, on YouTube, Dr. Dan Wallace, 
uh, that, that message I referred to. If you want a uh, book form regarding not only this issue, I've mentioned uh, the book Reinventing uh, Jesus, How Contemporary Skeptics Miss the Real Jesus and Mislead Popular Culture. The authors are J. Ed Komasuski, M. James Sawyer, and Daniel B. Wallace. A couple of books that go into this, but also into the question of the books of the Bible. Do we have the right books? Uh, Michael J. Kruger, his two books, The Question of Canon and uh, Canon Revisited. I'm holding them in my hands just now. They are great books to have uh, in your library if uh, you so wish to have them and want to delve uh, deeply or more deeply into this. You might not want to delve any further than this and just say, well, watch the video. <laughs> and uh, that might be what you do. But it's not important to be an expert in this area. I certainly don't claim that of myself. I'm aware of the issues, and it's good to be aware for the gospel conversations. But I, I want to say this. I believe with thunderous conviction that God has preserved his word, and we have it. And I can say with assurance, ladies and gentlemen, this is the Word of God whenever I read a passage from our Bibles. I would also say this. Many of you would have Bibles that have uh, verse, uh, what would be the word, uh, footnotes, so that you're reading verse 16 of a particular chapter and you go to the margin and there's a note at verse 16 and it might say something like MSS, which means manuscripts, and uh, it would give you some information that the Greek uh, manuscripts, the authoritative Greek manuscripts might uh, bring to that verse, and it might say some, um, some manuscripts omit this verse. Don't be worried by that. The, the fact is, we can be open and plain about the fact that scholarship has prevailed over the centuries. And we know much, much, much more than we did 500 years ago, certainly uh, beyond that, regarding what was in the original. There's the ending of Mark 16, and if you look there, you'll see some, tra uh, some translations of our Bibles actually have the last uh, few verses in brackets, and then there's a note that says uh, manu many manuscripts do not contain this. That's very, very helpful. The, the same in the Gospel of John. There's an entire passage that we don't believe was part of the original. When I was preaching through John's Gospel, I made allusion to that fact and uh, could not preach that particular passage as I would uh, others for that very reason. Scholarship has prevailed, and we are more certain than ever of what really is the original words uh, penned by John. That's what we really want, and that's what the discipline of textual criticism gives to us. So don't be afraid of it. We don't have to kiss our brains goodbye to say, I'm a Christian, and I believe the Bible is the Word of God. Uh, there are people with uh, extensive, extensive scholarship in this area who can say the exact same thing and do so with rigorous rationale. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together. We thank you that we have not only God speaking, but he has preserved his word to us 
not by dropping scrolls down from heaven, but using uh, men carried along by the Holy Spirit and then in terms of the scribes, preserving the original text so that we can, through the discipline of teams of scholars, really locate what was originally said, said by the gospel order, authors and the writers of both Old and New Testament. We haven't talked much about the Old Testament, but again, the scholarship has prevailed and we really do know what Moses wrote and so on. We, we are so thankful. We are a blessed people. This world is blessed because we can live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.